Hello, and welcome again to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Thanks for joining me. People need bees. Since the first wasp got a taste for pollen 125 million years ago, bees and flowers have co-evolved in a way that brings almonds and apricots to our tables. But honeybees, as well as the less well-known but equally critical miner, leafcutter, sweat, and mason bees, they're all in trouble, getting slammed by climate change, habitat loss, and pesticide use. To figure out how to protect them, biologist Thor Hansen studies them. He is author of a new book, Buzz, The Nature and Necessity of Bees. He came to the summit on Pike for Town Hall in Seattle, Wednesday, September 26, 2018. Hansen is a conservation biologist and Guggenheim Fellow. He has written books about forests, feathers, and seeds. He lives in the San Juan Islands with his wife and son, who has also grown to love bees. We met in a lavender patch on San Juan Island near a number of honeybee hives. By the way, if you want to flit around this interview, it's a long interview, almost an hour long. I'm doing something different this time, and I'll try to do it from now on. Here are a few points if you want to jump to them. You can find a full list at the website where you found this podcast. But if you want to know, for example, about the story of the honey guide, a bee that guides humans to beehives, that's at 1747. If you want to know how Thor Hansen came to be so passionate about bees, that's at 756. And if you want to know why a sweat bee is called a sweat bee, that's at 49.10. It was a sunny late August day. You will hear little children running around the purple flowers. I asked Thor Hansen what bees are usually flying around the lavender patch. To figure it out, he pulled out a small plastic tube that he uses to humanely collect, study, and release bees. There is a fellow with beehives who has a business, a honey business. If you look across the road... I see him. He's got a huge number of hives, and it does San Juan Island honey. And this is one of his key spots. Is, and then a whole bunch of native bees, too. So, you know, lavender is not a native, native plant, but a, the more generalist bees, so you see a lot of bumblebees on lavender, uh, and then a lot of honeybees as well. Bumblebees, native, right? Bumblebees are native, yeah. We have, oh, there are about a dozen species here in the island that you have a chance of seeing. And, uh, you know, so quite a variety there and tons of other native bees to be had as well from leaf cutters and miners to sweat bees and all sorts of fascinating little often overlooked creatures. But we might see some. There was still some activity. So we'll see if we can we can find it. Oh, you you were telling me about this little. What is this? This is um, it's just a little plastic vial. And these are for collecting insects and things. So we call this, in my family, we call it bee tubing. It's a little tube and we catch a bee in it. Uh, so this is, is high sport for uh, for my son and, and myself. Yeah, you wrote about that in the book. Yeah, you, your we, son really got into it. He loves it. He'll catch these things all day long. Uh, and so... We no, actually, that's, those, that's a bumblebee copper. What's that guy? This is another bumblebee. A different kind. And this one you can catch in your bare hands because it is a male. Doesn't have a stinger. There he comes. Oh, that's a beautiful bee. It's all that all that yellow on yeah, it. Yeah, really golden and fuzzy. Uh, uh, so we've just had two different species. This is Bombus vosnesenskii, which is a marvelous native bee and very common in throughout the West Coast, really. 
and quite a lovely bee, this big, robust black bee with a yellow face. It's called the yellow-faced bumblebee and a, and a nice, bold yellow stripe near the tip of the abdomen. Uh, and, you know, this is a great-looking uh, specimen right here. This is, is probably just a big worker, but she doesn't have any pollen on right now. And where do they live? Um, so they will nest in old mouse holes in the ground or in, you know, teapots or any enclosed space that they can find that has a little bit of uh, fluff down in there to make a nice nesting uh, situation. So they really like old rodent holes because the rodents leave behind, you know, fuzz and, and things that they've gathered. Uh, and th that's perfect for, for bumblebee nests in general. And this time of year, um, we have the potential to see workers still gathering pollen for that, those colonies, but also males, like that male of a different species we just saw, uh, and then the, the new queens, because bumblebee colonies are ephemeral. They last only one season. So all of the workers that we see out here today and all of the males are doomed. They're going to be uh, dead within uh, a month or six weeks. Uh, because their, their colonies are one year on a one-year cycle. And the only survivors are the new queens, which are just out and about right now. They're making fresh queens, and those will have a mating flight with these male drones that we see around us. And then it is those, those mated queens that survive the winter. They dig down into the soil someplace, into what they call a hibernaculum, which is a great word, uh, which... Sylvia Plath used very accurately in a poem once, the only <laughs> use of that in poetry that I know of, the hibernaculum. Uh, but at any rate, then in the springtime, the, those queens will emerge, they will dig their way out and found new colonies and start the whole process over again. Oh, so they'll carry the fertilized eggs in them yes. until that time? They, from their mating flight, they carry those eggs and uh, they have those for the rest of their lives and they use them then, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the, the sperm they carry for the rest of their lives. And then they, they dole that sperm out, using it uh, very uh, deliberately, in a sense, to determine the sex of their babies. In that, like wasps and ants and, and a number of, of related insects, they have the ability to predetermine the sex of their baby, whether or not they fertilize the egg. So a fertilized egg turns into a, a female, a little worker, or potentially a queen, uh, uh, where an unfertilized egg turns into a drone, a male. So what they do is they make workers, they make workers all season long, uh, and then only towards the end of the season do they bother making a few drones, which are useful for mating, but contribute nothing to the success otherwise of the nest itself. I just, now you got me. So you see that yellow one over there? Yeah. Is that the same one we so saw before? Yeah, let's grab him. Now how oh. come, how come there are, is a bee here, that a male bee that is stingless and therefore you know you can grab it? Ah, the stinger story, yes. Well, stingers evolved from what they call in biology the ovipositor or the egg-laying device of these insects. And so only the females have the ability to sting because they're the ones with the equipment for it. In all, in all bees? In all bees. All and wasps, wasps too? Yeah. Yes. So those stingers, they are, if you can imagine, a little tube 
out the back end of one of these insects designed for laying eggs. Well, in this group, uh, that evolved uh, to be a stinger used for a defense or in some cases for attacking. You know, wasps will use it uh, to immobilize a, a spider or a fly or something uh, that they are attacking to take home and feed to their offspring. Uh, in bees, it's, it's primarily used for defense. And the eggs then are just uh, deposited from a little hole at the base of, of the stinger. So they've modified that into a stinging device. But of course, it's you know, directly uh, uh, from the female equipment, from the female plumbing. So uh, the males can't do it. They just don't have the gear for it. So they're harmless. That's wild. Yeah. But are there, aren't there whole species of stingless bees? There are, and Are yeah. they more advanced? Than, if advanced isn't the right word, but they're more evolved? That's, no, it's a good question. The, the stinging ability has sort of come and gone a little bit in bees in huh. that if you think about, for bees, the, the usefulness of a sting, it primi primarily has to do with defense. And so you find the strongest stings in the species that have a lot to defend. And those would be things like bumblebees and particularly honeybees, where they have these nests, or for honeybees, hives of thousands of individuals and huge stores of honey and, and you know all of these larvae that they're feeding up in there. There's a huge investment for that so highly social group. Uh, and they tend to have the strongest defense and the strongest stings. But the vast majority of bees are solitary creatures. And we may see, you know, a, a leafcutter or a mason or, or a mining bee here today, but they're, they're, they're solitary. It's one female provisioning her own nest with six or eight uh, babies in there that she doesn't even see. She just lays the eggs, provisions them, closes it off, and does that until she runs out of steam. So if she is threatened around that nest, she's much more likely to flee. There's less there to defend. She doesn't have a bunch of daughters or sisters to help her defend it. Uh, and so many of those, sting, those uh, solitary species are either stingless, like many of the mining bees, or very reluctant to sting, and the stings are mild. It's just fascinating. You know, we talked before, a few years ago, about, from your, about your book, Feather. Yeah. Um, and reading this book and talking to you, the passion that you have for bees is, it's just, it's uh, palpable. Has it always been that way for you? Well, I got interested in bees when I was actually studying trees down in the rainforest. And I was studying populations of trees and trying to understand how trees were related to one another, how they dispersed across the landscape, and uh, how they functioned as a, as a population, as a community, if you will. So I went out into this one area of Costa Rica and I genetically fingerprinted all of the adult trees in this, of this particular species in this landscape. And when I had those genetic fingerprints and all that data, then I could see what was happening. I could see where uh, seeds were coming from, identify the parent trees, and I could also track the movement of pollen. And that told me that something was moving pollen around in that landscape, out of sight, way up in the canopy of that rainforest not just between neighboring trees, but among trees that were as much as a mile and a half apart. And because the tree was in the pea family and had these big purple pea flowers, just like the sweet peas or garden peas in the backyard at home, I knew that that something had to be bees. And so I was just totally fascinated and determined to learn about these creatures. And I co-opted an entomologist friend of mine 
into joining me, and we went down there, uh, hired a local field assistant who was handy with a crossbow, and he uh, was shooting lines up into these trees, and we were hauling up all manner of insect traps for, you know, day after day of this and catching a grand total of zero bees. It was a total flop scientifically, but that curiosity that was sparked got me thinking about bees in, in a way that has never stopped. I've been looking for ways to chase after them in, in work, with research projects, but also just in daily life ever since. That, that really triggered something for me, and so I've, I've been fascinated by them for years. Really, in daily life, you find yourself every day thinking, what are the bees doing somewhere? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, they're really part of the rhythm of, of our lives. Here comes a honeybee on, on that. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Over there. Uh, I mean, they really are part of the rhythm of our own annual cycle, in a sense. I mean, seeing the first bee of the year for us is a huge sign of spring. And those first bees are, around here, in this neck of the woods, are the, uh, are the queen bumblebees that we were just chatting about, coming out and looking to establish their nests. So um, we find ourselves, you know, looking for bees and catching them and greeting them almost as old friends when we see the species uh, emerging uh, over the course of the spring and then into the summer and then this time of year, watching as things wind down for them. Do you do you take your? I know you take your son on some of the collecting trips. Do you do you see your son as a budding entomologist? He sees himself that way. He wrote in some parts of the book. Sure. Well, he is fascinated by a lot of things in nature as well, and I think that is is really typical of children. There's a there's a natural curiosity that we all have about the world around us. And, and when I take kids out looking at bees, for example, they're just, they're thrilled, you know, to be looking at them closely and told that it's okay to catch them and look at them and, and ask questions. So I think Noah shares in that general curiosity for these creatures, whether or not he'll be an entomologist, I don't know. I think <laughs> if you asked him today, he would say that he wanted to uh, have a career restoring antique tractors. Oh, well, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, that's a, that's a passion right now, for sure. Um, what would all these, uh, especially these uh, bumblebees, what would they be doing if there weren't these lavender farm, this lavender farm here? Because lavender's not native to these islands. You're right. Yeah, lavender is, you know, a European, a Mediterranean species, and we just grow it here as a crop. So what you tend to see on it are more generalist bees, like various bumblebees or the honeybees, which are also European, non-native that use a, a variety of things in the landscape. And so if you plant lavender or things in your garden that might be from elsewhere, these bees that are looking for general flower characteristics uh, will find them and they'll use them. And so they are happy enough here on this lavender. Uh, but what you miss in a landscape like this or a situation like this are some of the native bees who specialize on particular native wildflowers. And there are a host of them here, you know, certainly uh, between 100 and 200 species of native bees probably here on, in, in the islands. We don't have a good list, but our, you know, initial uh, looks at it, uh, you know, number in the scores of species, and, and we, haven't, uh, we haven't nearly exhausted it. That's, a, that's sort of an astounding number to me, 100 to 200 species just in these San Juan Islands. What, um, how is it that they filled so many different niches? over the course of all these eons. That's a pretty remarkable number, isn't it? Yeah, well, bees are remarkably diverse and it, it ties in with this long co-evolutionary history with flowers. And so, you know, that was something of a mystery 
to early naturalists and, and uh, paleobotanists, if you will, probably before the term was even coined. But people like Charles Darwin were just astounded, really, by the sudden appearance of flowering plants in the fossil record. Just, just nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing. And then all of a sudden, at a certain time frame, about, you know, 100 to uh, 120 million years ago, they're just everywhere and diverse and abundant. And for Darwin, it was actually a bit of a challenge to his concept of evolution as a slow and incremental process. He called it an abominable mystery. And he uh, you know, finally decided that, you know, these flowering plants must have evolved slowly somewhere else and then dispersed rapidly to the places where they became fossilized. But there was another naturalist, lesser known at the time, a Frenchman named Gaston de Saporta, who had, he hit the nail on the head. Nobody listened to him at the time, but he said that, in fact, the, the flowering plants really did evolve rapidly because of their association with flower-visiting insects, and particularly bees, you know, these dedicated uh, floral visitors that began moving pollen en masse and that uh, uh, increased the rate, if you will, of evolution by increasing the rate of mixing among individuals. And then because of this dance between the flowers and, and the bees in terms of you know, what do you do to, to attract a pollinator on the flowers side, on the plant side of things, uh, that, you know, led to great diversity of flower types. You know, there's huge consequence for changing the shape of flowers or providing nectar of you know different sweetness or or providing pollen that is more nutritious and contains more protein all of these various uh, factors that can change over the course of evolution have great consequence and so uh, that helps spur diversity in that this led to success with this kind of bee this led to success with this kind of bee or butterfly or you know in some cases even wasps or flies so those visitors to the flowers spurred this diversity of plants and in turn for bees uh, at least uh, spurred great diversity on that side of the equation as well so that we have fully 20,000 species of bees in the world, which is more species than all of the mammals and birds put together, and then some. And then spurred our diversity, or in our, our evolution too, because you write about, uh, well, you write about going to South Africa? Yes. To a conference. So first of all, what was this was a what was the paper you were presenting there? <laughs> well, I was I was presenting a paper uh, that had to do with that research on rainforest trees, and this was a conference of conservation biologists. But one of the funny things about conservation biologists uh, and field biologists, I think, in general, at these conferences, is you get all of these people who really love to be outside, and you pack them together in a hotel someplace, and they start to go bananas. So at, within a few days, you can see furtively people sort of escaping and getting taxis to the nearest park or what have you. And I skipped out on this conference right where it was, it was occurring. It was in a patch of a native habitat there, a shrubby, dry uh, habitat called the Fainboss. Uh, which is, is a marvelous area for bees and is, you know, a place where honeybees are native. They're native to Africa and the southern part of Europe and into the Near East. And having, you know, spent most of my bee watching in North America, where, where honeybees are common as a domestic species but are not native, I really wanted to see them in their own neighborhood, if you will. And so I skipped out and was wandering around uh, the Feinbos there looking for honeybees, and I found some, but I never did find a hive of them. I saw individuals foraging, 
And what I was hoping for and had a chance of experiencing was bumping into a honey guide, which is a bird that earned its name through guiding behavior, which is a bird that guides people regularly to honeybee hives. Uh, lands on a twig near the people, it gets their attention by flapping and making a very distinctive call, and people follow that bird as it hops along and flutters through the landscape straight to the hive. And the, the bird's goal is to get those people to breach the nest, open it up, take the honey, and then the bird feasts on the leftovers. And for a long time, it was believed that this behavior, this guiding behavior, must have evolved between the bird and another honey-eating species in that landscape, the ratel or honey badger. And people thought, well, that is how it evolved. And then people came along and learned to exploit that situation. And it wasn't really until the 1980s that a group of South African biologists pointed out something that should have been obvious all along, and that is that honey badgers are nocturnal and the bird is active during the daytime. So these two species only over, you know, overlap at dusk, which is hardly a good uh, you know, starting point for coevolution. Uh, and, and you add to that the fact that the, the honey badgers are, are nearsighted and they don't climb trees or prefer not to, and, and it's mostly the tree nests that the birds are good at finding. And the whole thing kind of fell apart. And then uh, people came along and started asking, well, you know, what else? Could account for this. And the, the fascinating research that has recently emerged has to do with hunter-gatherers in African landscapes, and particularly the Hadza tribe in Tanzania, which is a group, a small uh, a group of which uh, is still living a very traditional uh, subsistence lifestyle in the very landscape where our species is thought to have evolved. And they do collect wild honey, and they do follow honey guides. That's been known for years. But a, a great anthropologist, a nutritional anthropologist named Alyssa Crittenden from the University of Nevada and Las Vegas was the first person to ask what is a very basic question, but how much honey do the Hadza eat? And she started to measure it. And she learned that this is not just an occasional sweet treat that people enjoy. It's everyone's favorite food and they look for it in the landscape every single day. They're out there always looking for honey. They may hunt other things, but they're always on the lookout for not only honeybee nests, but at least six other honey-making varieties in that, that neighborhood. So that begins to take on real meaning in an evolutionary context, in that Alyssa and her colleagues asked another question, well, why would our ancestors living in basically the same way in the same landscape have done anything differently. Wouldn't they have been looking for honey too? And if they were, then that uh, takes us back not just thousands of years with our relationship uh, to bees, but millions of years to Australopithecus and Homo erectus, Homo habilis, these earlier primates that were out there looking for honey every day. And it certainly explains the co-evolution of honey guides. They co-evolved with us. And, and it, it raises the question about, as you, as you read about in the book, about our use of our need for honey because our need for glucose because of our brains and as our brains get bigger or our brains have the opportunity to get bigger because of this food source, perhaps. Yeah, it's a marvelous addition to our you know, theories of how people evolve such large brains. 
it, exactly as, as, as you put it, the story of human evolution has always been a story about brain size. And when we look back over you know, the, the history of these fossils that we have in the, in the species, whenever anthropologists note a, a rapid increase in brain size over time, the theory has always been to associate that with some change in behavior that would have allowed more calories. Because the brain is what is called uh, uh, metabolically expensive tissue. If you, I love that phrase, but you know, that's, physiologists will tell you it takes a lot of energy to run a brain. You know, up to 20% of our daily calorie intake goes to fuel something that's only 2% of our body size. So if you want to evolve a larger brain, you need more fuel in, in the form of calories. So typically, we've looked in, into the past and said, all right, perhaps you know, the invention of hunting or you know, increases in tool use or better tool use for hunting or for gathering, you know, the evolution of cooperation for group activities to allow more calories, or uh, the mastery of fire, which would allow cooking of food, which frees up, again, more calories to fuel these growing brains. But one uh, thing that's interesting about the brain is not only you know, that it takes a lot of energy, but it, re it requires glucose. And so if you eat other things, your body transforms them into glucose to fuel all kinds of cells, but particularly to fuel the brain. And there is no richer source of glucose in nature than honey. So when you start seeing how much honey modern hunter-gatherers use, and it's measured at at least 15% of their calorie intake over the course of a year, and for some individuals far higher than that, and some times of the year when honey is prolific, you know, higher still, uh, you start to realize this is something that we've been missing for a long time. The potential impact of our primordial sweet tooth, if you will, leading us to bees and to honey and providing fuel for brain evolution. You know, one thing I like about that theory is that it is a theory, right? And that's science, theories, and then we test and we figure out and we go to different theories, is that it is um, ever-changing but it is on a path towards understanding what might be a truth. Um, and I was just thinking about it, reading about it in this day and age where the doubt about truth is paramount, right? It is, it, we now have a cult of untruth mm. uh, in a lot of our culture and a, 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 dis, a distrust of scientists because they don't give the exact answer, they give a possible answer and a percentage of, of that possibility. So. When you're studying these things, how do you think of science and truths as it changes? That's a terrific question. And I have come to think of science as a practice of questions. We tend to look at science now, particularly in the modern world, as a source of answers. We want to know answers to things, and we expect science to provide answers. But what science is really good at generating are questions. You know, when we ask good questions, we learn, and we get uh, we get at the truth. But the you know the truth is complicated, and so we add facts to these situations and allow ourselves to learn and to infer, and ultimately to ask better questions. I mean, think of this research we've just been talking about. Gosh, look at how much. You know, how much honey do these people eat? My God, they eat a lot of honey. Would our ancestors have eaten honey like that? What, you know, what does honey provide? And, and, and you start asking more and more questions, and as you put it uh, very eloquently, getting at the truth 
through this path of questions. And I think that if we can do better as scientists in explaining that fundamental question mark, that fundamental curiosity, and the route that we take to understanding, and, and lead people to you know, approach science not for you know, answers to every question, but to a, a better understanding, we'll be in better shape in terms of how we, we approach questions of, 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 of truth and, and false truth yeah, in, I mean, in our society. This is the goofy battle about climate change, right? Well, what is, you know, it's this, it's not this, uneducated people say, because it's a hot day today or it's a cold day today or whatever. But the ability to understand something like climate change is, is the ability to bring so many disparate facts into, into a place. And then we're still just... We're still just thinking about it. We're still just trying to figure it out. It just doesn't meet everybody's uh, need in this in this culture, right? Of, You're right. Yeah. You're right. It's it puts scientists at a disadvantage in a sense, in that uh, we we ask questions and we are trained to ask questions and to doubt in a sense, yeah. you know. And and so it, it's very difficult to argue from that perspective against uh, a more dogmatic perspective in that if we raise questions, dogma doesn't necessarily need to consider those questions because they have the answer that they believe in already. Whereas if questions are raised to scientists, we always consider the questions. We love questions. And so it, it, there is a, a disparity in the perspectives that we come to in arguing some of these points. Yeah, yeah. Scientists and journalists, right? Um, love questions. Yeah. All right, so I have one, another one. Uh, you did this study you write about it in the book of of what of, of you looked along the shoreline of, of these islands to see what was living there, and and that's where you've started sort of beginning to tabulate the number of species. What who is coming to the so what was it the intertidal zone up to the drier area? Who is coming there? What bees are coming there? Oh, that's a marvelous question. So those shorelines are often used as as pathways by bees. They travel along an easy way to, to go along, you know, distance. So you can sit there and watch bees and other creatures using the shoreline as, as a, a travel way. But what was really striking about the particular place that I wrote about in the book was how the shoreline provided a habitat for bees. And we don't think of bees, you know, in the intertidal zone. They're, they're, they're not gathering uh, pollen or nectar there. But in this case, you had a sandy bluff rising up from the shore, uh, connecting up to fields up on top. And there were hundreds of thousands, it turns out, bees nesting in that bluff because what they had discovered in that setting was a complete habitat for bees in that the, the bluff itself, the sand, provided a wonderful place for these digger bees to make their nests. And then uh, the, the top of the bluff was covered with rose bushes, wild rose bushes and snowberry bushes and some uh, feral cherry trees and all of these other flowering plants, blackberries and what have you, that provided you know, almost limitless nectar and pollen. Uh, and then nearby was a wetland that provided fresh water. And so what we saw in this situation was the potential for population growth for bees when they have everything they need. Oftentimes in nature or in our agricultural settings, bees may only have a partial habitat. 
they might have a great place to nest, but a limited number of flowers. Or, or they might have flowers and nesting habitat, but there's no fresh water. And many bees require you know, standing fresh water either uh, for cooling the nest or for nest building or for other uh, purposes. So in this situation, we had you know, limitless quantities of nesting habitat. Not limitless, but huge. Uh, uh, because of this long sandy bluff and then an incredible supply of flowers and wonderful fresh water and a bee that typically one sees 20 or 50 or a few hundred individuals in this setting the the population had grown to over 130,000 nesting females and an equal or larger number of males. And what were, were those digger bees? These were a particular kind of digger bee. That's a fascinating species for many reasons but in part because it's called uh, the digger bee genus is Anthophora and the the specific epithet the species is for this one Bomboides meaning that it it mimics the bumblebees of the genus Bombus. And so these Anthophora bomboides, bumblebee mimic diggers, really do look almost exactly like bumblebees. You have to get up close to realize that that's not a bumblebee. And they mimic those bumblebees uh, to take advantage of that strong sting we were talking about earlier. Bumblebees being a social species, defend their nests with a powerful sting. Digger species, though they aggregate in a cliff or something, they're, they're solitary. It's just each female with her own little hole. Uh, and so she does not have a strong sting. And in this case, appears to have lost the sting entirely, relying instead upon looking like a dangerous species. Now, um, don't you have a favorite? Didn't you have a favorite um, a sweat bee? No, was it Nolia? Is that right? It's Nomia. Nomia, Nomia. And what, what, what is the sweat bee and why is that one your favorite? Yeah, well, there are all sorts of sweat bees. It's a big family of bees, but this particular one became a favorite for me due really to the beauty of the bee and the unexpected beauty of, of it, in a sense, in that we think of bees, first of all, we think, you know, yellow and black stripes, which, you know, accounts for many species of bees, but bees can be as colorful and diverse as anything in a bird book. I mean, you have blue-banded bees, you have bright red bees, you have iridescent green bees and purple iridescent bees of all sorts around the world. What just totally uh, made me fall in love with the Nomia bees, which is the alkali bee, and it's native to the western states in the drier parts of uh, the western states of North America, is that the the stripes on the abdomen of the bee are not made with hairs, which is typical uh, for many bees, but are actually built into the exoskeleton, the integument of the bee, that outer hard surface. And those stripes are uh, uh, structured in such a way that they scatter light, just like the surface of an opal scatters light. So when you look closely at these bees, you see opalescent stripes that are that are scattering these wonderful rainbows that shimmer and shift as you look at the bee. I mean, it's as if those, those stripes were just made of light glowing there. It's absolutely stunning, like anything you might see, you know, in a jewelry store, and they're just flying around uh, in the landscape. A widespread bee, a healthy population of them in this part of the world? Widespread in nature, um, and also, in a very interesting way, they've been used in agriculture in only one particular valley, but a place where, where farmers are growing alfalfa for seed. Now this is the, what, the Touchette Valley in yeah. near the Walla Walla. You're right about that. So what are they doing? It is a wonderful place out near Walla Walla, and they pronounce it Tushi. I Tushy. learned when I, was, when I uh, visited out there. Uh, 
uh, and spent some time with uh, a farmer named Mark Wagoner on the Wagoner uh, farm there where they're growing alfalfa and have been now for generations. And it, it, alfalfa is a curious plant in that it has these, it's in the pea family, so again, sort of a banner and keel type flower. But what's interesting about alfalfa is that the flower parts are packed into those petals so tightly that when a bee visits to access either the pollen or nectar, you know, the reward that it's after uh, in that flower, it, in parting those petals, the flower parts, the stamens and, and uh, uh, pistil and what have you, come flying out and whap the bee on the head. It's like getting socked in the jaw for a bee. I mean, and the honeybees can't stand it. And they might get hit once or twice and then they bag it and they don't want to visit the flowers or they'll try to sneak in from the backside and get some nectar without ever pollinating them. Uh, and so honeybees are no good for pollinating alfalfa. But when the farmers in this area were first experimenting with alfalfa, and this is, you know, uh, decades ago, uh, two generations ago, uh, in some cases, they noticed a local native bee in and amongst the flowers that appeared to be doing a really good job. Didn't seem to be bothered at all by being whapped. It would just stay on the flower and keep going and, and, and get the job done. And those were alkali bees, this genus Nomia, these beautiful little bees. So they did, you know, something that, you know, our ancestors have been doing in one form or another for perhaps millions of years, and they followed the bees. They followed them back and saw where they were nesting. And alkali bees in that setting were nesting in some bee beds along the sides of a, of a river there, where the, it was flat, and there was a thin layer of salt crusted over the soil, uh, and they, they nest in the ground where that salt has trapped some moisture so that it's a good place to dig a tunnel. You know, the walls don't collapse if it's a little bit moist. And so the farmers, through trial and error, learned to replicate that nesting habitat out in their alfalfa fields. So they'll plant a new field of alfalfa, and then nearby they plant a field of, of bees, if you will. They create this habitat. It's, it's perhaps the only agricultural place in the world where you see farmers salting their fields. But they go out with thousands of pounds of rock salt and create a salty uh, crust over the top of the field, and then they sub-irrigate the field to just the right moisture level so that it's good for, for the bees. And the bees find it, dig their uh, tunnels, produce their young. They're surrounded by alfalfa, something that they love you know, for nectar and pollen. It provides you know, nearly everything that they need in that setting. And so in this, this farming setting, you have farmers thinking constantly about bees, extremely knowledgeable about how to favor their bees as well as their alfalfa, because they really see these things hand in hand. And it is, has grown into the largest aggregation of native bees ever measured. It, the last time anyone bothered to count, and there are more now, but this was uh, about 10 years ago now, it was between 18 and 25 million of these nesting females in that landscape, and there are more now, and it keeps growing as they plant more fields and plant more bees. Now, and you write about it, in that area, these farmers, they have a speed limit, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., you gotta go 20 miles an hour, they don't wanna disrupt their bees, so they are in tuned to the agricultural benefits that are getting that we're getting. So let me let me go there a little bit with you on on that because that takes us to honeybees and and the whole world of uh, that you know of we're facing. You deconstructed Big Mac just to sort of prove how much the bee contributes to our our livelihood, and it was immense amount, right? Yeah, it's it's funny. You know, we often hear 
this statistic that every third bite of food in the human diet relies in some form or another upon bees. And that is sort of an intuitive connection if you go to the farmer's market or if you you know, walk down the produce aisle in the grocery store and you see a lot of fruits and vegetables and nuts and you think, yeah, we, you know, I can imagine a bee pollinating the flowers that led to this. But I was really curious about trying to parse that number in a different way and, and deconstruct a meal where you would never expect bees to be involved. And I came up with, with the Big Mac as sort of some you know, a classic meal that people are familiar with. In fact, many of us uh, of a certain age can sing that jingle that tells you the recipe, you know, two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, on, and on the sesame seed bun. And I decided, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this thing apart. And so I went to a McDonald's with my tweezers and my hand lens and a stack of reference books. And I sat there you know, ignoring the curious stares from all around uh, as I took that thing apart and I made a pile of the things that you could eat in a world without bees and then a pile of the things that would have to come off of that burger if we didn't have bees uh, in the mix. And, you know, first of all, you could have the, the all-beef patties because cows can be raised upon on grass and grasses are, are pollinated generally by the wind. So, okay, we, we've got two all-beef patties still. And you could have the bun, which is made largely from grains. Again, a wind-pollinated grass that is providing that. But I quickly learned that virtually everything else on that burger would have to come off. All the things that make it interesting and tasty, whether it's the, you know, bee-pollinated cucumbers for the pickles, or even, uh, you know, the lettuce, which which uh, we eat the leaves of, but that variety, iceberg lettuce, was, was developed in an open bee-pollinated trial by a good old W. w Atlas Burpee, the old Burpee Seed Company, over 100 years ago. So bees, again, involved in that part of the meal, even the special sauce, which doesn't look very promising for bees, but it has some pickles in it, but it also has paprika, which is a bee-pollinated uh, pepper. Uh, it also has... <clears throat> Uh, several, uh, a couple of different vegetable oils that contribute to the creaminess. It can be canola oil, which is from a bee-pollinated mustard, or it can be in, uh, soybean oil, which can self-pollinate, but where you get 10 to 40 percent higher yields if you have bees in your field. So soybean farmers love bees too. Uh, so you quickly realize in that situation that it's not so much about you know every third bite, but you think about what bites would be left. And what would we be eating in a world without bees? We might still find things to eat, but they would be uh, quite dull, uh, without much flavor, uh, and probably not nearly as nutritious, because we get so many uh, nutrients uh, from the bees as well. And we wouldn't have all that honey um, on top of all that. Yeah. So what got you thinking about this was all the environmental factors involved. So environmental habitat loss, environmental deg degradation, toxic problems, and um, what we are calling colony collapse disorder for European honeybees that are all over doing all, a lot of yeoman's work. So I guess what did you come away thinking about those different things, just in, in more, most broadly? Sure. I think, you know, in this day and age, it's hard to talk about bees, you know, without confronting the challenges that they face. I mean, they are uh, under threat, as you point out, from a variety of factors. And this really grabbed the public attention and really scientific attention in 2006 when that colony collapse disorder appeared on the scene and when commercial honeybee keepers, who know their honeybees very well and they know how to take care of them, 
began losing colonies in mass, you know, 30, 40 percent of their hives. Some people lost 80 or 90 percent of their hives over uh, the course of that crisis. You know, every year they'd lose massive numbers. Uh, and it spurred this great research effort into trying to understand why. And one of the people I talked to for the book, Diane Cox Foster, uh, who is now at the National Bee Lab but was at uh, a university on the East Coast at the time, she's been involved since the beginning because she's an expert on bee diseases. And so the, right from the start, beekeepers came to her lab for answers. Again, as we're talking, uh, uh, people want the answer. Uh, and, of course, it led to more questions, uh, just <laughs> classic. So at any rate, Diane got to work on this, and she is among the scientists who coined that that term, colony collapse disorder, because they used to call that sort of thing on a smaller scale dwindle disease, but there was nothing about this that seemed like dwindling, it was a collapse. And what they learned ultimately over time is that it's not one thing. It is what some people are now calling multiple stress disorder. You have all of these negative factors impacting bees in their environment, and it impacts honeybees, but also native bees as well. Four of the key ones are now summarized as the four P's, uh, meaning you know, pathogens, all of these various diseases that bees catch, parasites like these awful varroa mites that get onto uh, honeybees, but also on, affect native bees too in some cases. Um, and then pesticides, which we apply in our backyards, but also in mass in agricultural settings. And then another one called what they call poor nutrition that requires a bit of explanation in that bees don't have flowers in a lot of landscapes where they used to. You know, here, you mentioned earlier, here we are standing in this wonderful lavender field, and there are a lot of bees around, even here at the tail end of the season. Uh, but when you plant crops in a monoculture, one species over massive acreage, it may flower beautifully for bees for three weeks, and then it's a desert because there's nothing else there. The efficiency that, that we've gained through modern farming by farming from field edge to field edge without hedgerows and one crop at, in, in, in a large setting, you know, has replaced a landscape in rural areas where there were a lot of hedgerows. There was a diversity of farms. There were you know, farmsteads here and there that had their backyard gardens and orchards. There was a much higher diversity of floral resources in those traditional farming landscapes than in a modern uh, industrial scale setting. And so for native bees and also for the honeybees that we rely upon for a lot of crop production, uh, and move them around from field to field, they're suffering from poor nutrition. They get out there and there's only one thing to eat and it's only there for a brief period of time. Uh, so the, the silver lining of this whole colony collapse experience uh, is in the greater understanding that people have now, scientists and growing uh, beyond that, that community to people at large, uh, farmers and uh, you know conservationists and and policymakers it is an understanding of, of the threats to bees that is greater than we've we've known in the past. So I want to circle back around to competition and pesticides and the other problems. But so you went out to the almond grower, an almond growing uh, area of California, which is a monoculture, and you met some people who are dealing with that, or at least talking about dealing with that. Some of them are dealing with it. Uh, by planting hedgerows, right, of native plants. So they're trying to give something to the native bees to help them pollinate their almonds. Are they also trying to help the honeybees? Yeah, though this is a great, uh, a great example. And I did visit an almond grove, uh, an almond orchard in central 
California, in that Central Valley, which is one of the most intense farming areas of the world and, and farmed on a grand scale. The, the original habitat is virtually all gone and you have these uh, great fields of many things, but including uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres of almonds that are wonderful bee habitat, again, for a few weeks out of the year. But because of the lack of habitat for bees in general in that landscape, they require an, the import of over, a, you know, close to two million honeybee hives every February, you know, and in, into the early spring to make sure that those almonds get pollinated because there just aren't enough native bees around to get the job done. They don't have habitat for the rest of the year. So what was happening on this orchard and is now happening on thousands of acres in those almond groves uh, is an attempt to provide better habitat for bees, for native bees, and then also for the honeybees. When they are brought in, again, they're, they're just, all they get is, is, is almond flowers, which is great, but they need a diversity. Uh, and if there are other things on the landscape, they can stay in place for longer and not have to be moved around quite so rapidly. So what these uh, uh, orchardists, assisted by people from a great conservation group called the Xerces Society, uh, providing some expertise on what to plant, putting in hedgerows, a sort of, you know, a return to an older style, if you will, of farming, where you put in hedgerows that provide this habitat. And by planting these native plants in these hedgerows, they find they can, you know, triple bee diversity and abundance uh, in a single season. It's really one of these very rare instances in conservation biology where you can experience instant gratification. Does it also then triple pollination? Does it help the almond growers? Are they are they encouraged by that to do more? I, it does. It helps. It's not a replacement, and it's not even being pitched as a replacement in that setting for uh, importing bees, but it's seen as a way to lessen the dependence on one species of bee and to provide better habitat for the native bees that will assist with pollination and better habitat for the honeybees when they're on site. Yeah. But, but those guys still use massive amounts of pesticides and herbicides, right? Because they need a, a, clear, a clear path underneath all their trees because they worry about other diseases. So it, it seems like they're caught in, still caught in a little bit of a cycle, a vicious cycle. Yeah, there is a, 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 you know, a conflict between pesticide use and, uh, and certainly in, and having bees on the landscape because, of course, they're affected even by many of the, you know, more, quote-unquote, bee-safe pesticides, which can be tested in a lab and they seem all right, but you get out into a, a setting in the landscape where other chemicals are being applied, fungicides and herbicides and other things, and we find that, unfortunately, a lot of those chemicals interact and they behave differently out in the environment. And sometimes things that are benign in one setting can be uh, detrimental in another because of the, these interactions. But I think farmers in a lot of areas now look to a situation like the alfalfa growers in Tushi, who also use herbicides and pesticides, but who are thinking about bees all the time because those alkali bees, and they also use some leafcutter bees, uh, another uh, smaller, uh, less famous species, but a good pollinator for them. They think about bees all the time, and they're planning their agricultural practice around it, even though it's at a large scale. So, you know, any pesticides they use are the safest they can find for bees, and they're applied. They stay up late at night to apply when the bees are all tucked into their ground nests. 
uh, and they apply things that dissipate quickly, so they hope there's no residue left in the morning when the bees come out to forage. So there are examples out there now of how including bees in every management decision can improve the lot of bees uh, in even these intensively farmed situations. By the way, the sweat bee is called the sweat bee because why? Ah, well, so bees will, of some varieties and many in that group, not all, but will visit human sweat uh, to drink the water and, and the, the, you know, the minerals and things that are found in our sweat, they also may need in some instance. So I distinctly remember, and if we want to get even further back into uh, my own experience with bees, being stunned and dumbfounded uh, years and years ago when I was working in Uganda in East Africa, and I was working on a mountain gorilla project there and spent a lot of time habituating mountain gorillas, you know, sitting uh, close to these animals in the wild. And in those settings, you know, you, you, there are a lot of insects around. And there were these little flies that were constantly drinking sweat off of our faces and arms. And it was months or maybe even more than a year that I'd been there when I finally looked closely at these little creatures on our arms and, and getting into our, uh, the edges of our eyes and realize that these were all very tiny little black bees, you know, perfectly formed, wonderful little bees in uh, a, a family of, of stingless bees in the tropics. These little uh, stingless bees were, were constantly visiting us there, drinking from our sweat. That's such a cool story. So um, the native bees have to compete with these honeybees. And you know, we know all sorts of stories of humans bringing in creatures out competing the native species. Is that happening with native bees? It's a great question. And the answer is yes, honeybees compete with native species. In many situations though, what we find is that, you know, the emphasis is best put on improving the lot for all bees. If you get more flowers into the landscape, you get this instant gratification. You see bees respond quickly, and it benefits all bees. The places where bee scientists, native bee experts, are most concerned are native habitats where honeybees are brought. Uh, so less so in our backyards or agricultural settings, where there's plenty of work we can do you know, by planting and providing nesting habitat that benefits everyone. The greater concern is when large numbers of honeybees are what what they say put out to pasture really in these uh, mountain meadows, for example, or na natural areas where uh, the, th that sudden inundation of thousands upon thousands of bees uh, does have a very measurable impact on the native bees in those you know, native wildflower meadows uh, because you have a lot of specialist bees there that are only active for a few weeks. You have a lot of uh, uh, bees that can be quickly uh, uh, impacted by the, 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 the extraction, if you will, of nectar and pollen that goes on by this massive force of visiting bees. Because, and this tends to happen, you know, with large uh, commercial beekeeping operations, uh, you know, which are essential now for our agricultural production. And they, they understand the needs of their bees very well. But when there aren't things, you know, in flower, crops in flower, they want a place to park these bees that have you know, a diversity of flowers. So they often will go out into national forests or you know, get a permit and do this. But uh, there's you know, you know, controversy now uh, about how much that should be going on and what impact it's having on the native bees in these landscapes. What, what are you thinking? It's a practice that needs to be limited in many places because you can really measure 
the you know the impact and there's a paper out a few years ago where they tried to calculate you know how much nectar and pollen a typical honeybee hive which you know they're they're incredible you know they they're tens of thousands of individuals uh extracts and and how much how many native bees that might have provisioned in one of these landscapes and it's uh you know tens of thousands of native bees of course that are uh, outcompeted potentially in that situation here too like even in the northwest sure. and all the yeah. forests that we have and because i have seen those hives sometimes in the forest yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, in the, in the natural that. and it's that's that's the major concern. I think when you get out into agricultural places like where we are today, or people who are beekeeping in their backyards, it, for most bee scientists, it's less of a concern because anything we do in in you know rural areas and in suburban areas and even in cities to help bees is going to help all the bees. But it does bring up a, a point that often doesn't get raised about about backyard beekeeping, uh, and and that is if you want to to keep bees which is a marvelous thing to do they're such fascinating creatures the honeybees uh helping bees involves not only keeping them but providing something for them so if you bring in a hive of bees to your backyard be sure you also plant a diversity of flowers so that you're feeding not only your your own bees but the native bees that are already there in the landscape. Wow. And there's nothing more fun than sitting there and seeing all the different things that are coming from to lavender plants to all the different flowers because there's so much. Yeah. Um, all right, uh, I ask scientists this question all the time, conservation biologists. So, uh, well, I guess you could answer it another way, like half full, half empty. What's your thoughts about the future of this world? But uh, what was that great thing your son said to you, your bee helper? What did he say? Oh, it was marvelous. We were, it was right around our, uh, you know, first bee of the year, if you will. It was a springtime situation, and we were watching some queen bumblebees that uh, were sunning themselves on the side of our house and just admiring them. And, uh, and he said to me, he said, Papa, the world could do without us, but it couldn't do without bees. And he's very, very accurate in that observation you know we we could disappear tomorrow and the, the world would go on uh, much as it was uh, before we became so dominant but but bees because of their intimate relationship to flowers that are the dominant you know plants in our landscapes native landscapes as well as agricultural settings uh, you know the loss of bees is, is a, would be a tremendous earth-shattering loss to ecosystems everywhere. You'd see collapse in all sorts of situations. The good news, though, is lies in the fact that in spite of how complex the science is in terms of understanding bee declines, the good news is we know enough to take action. We know we can help bees by reducing pesticide use, by uh, planting more flowers, providing these hedgerows and flowers in rural areas and in our own backyards. And we know that many bees, at least, respond very quickly to those fairly straightforward steps and their populations recover. You know, it's a lot uh, faster reward than working on, you know, some other species that take mountain gorillas, mountain gorillas for example, or, you know, or orca whales or, or spotted owls or things where you, you, you invest decades and decades hoping you're, you're on the right track to helping a population. But you can see it in a season for bees. And that's that's the good news. That's the 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 hopeful news, the half full glass news for bees is that we know enough to help, even if we don't understand everything, we, we know enough to take action. Okay. So what's the half empty part? Oh well the half empty part is that it's you know, it's a long uh 
it's a long road to hoe, really. I mean, if you think about changing uh, our agricultural practices, for example, in a large scale, we're very dependent right now upon uh, to produce the amount of food at the cost that we're used, we've become accustomed to. We're very dependent upon chemicals to get that done, uh, whether it's the herbicides and fungicides or the pesticides that, that uh, make these things possible, fertilizers and all sorts of things. You know, changing that at a grand scale uh, is going to take a lot of, of effort. It's going to take a lot of these concerned, you know, orchardists, uh, you know, a lot who are planting hedgerows, a lot of, you know, effort to reduce our dependence on those things. Uh, and, and you add to that, you know, the overarching stresses of a growing human population and climate change, and it's, it's a challenging setting. So that's the half-empty part, is this is a, you know, uh, a difficult time to be doing this and facing the challenges that we have, you know, stressing all ecosystems. The, so you have to balance that against the positive, which is the fact that bees do respond and we can help them. Yeah, and that we're not dumb and that there are facts and we, scientists know some answers that we can follow. What did you call that plastic vial again? We call it a bee tube in my family. Bee tubing. Nice I think bee. I need to do bee tubing. I, if, I think you should I can do it safely, right? You can do it safely on that one right there. Man, I love the pictures in the book of all the different kinds of bees, especially some of those bees that have evolved with those really long mandibles to get into very specific flowers. There's an amazing variety of bees. It's, it, they're incredibly diverse. I mean, bees so tiny that you can't even stick a pin through them in a bee collection. They're glued to the sides of the pins to these massive, you know, big bumblebees that we see here. And then bees even larger than that, the Wallace's leafcutter bee, uh, famously discovered by... Alfred Russell Wallace and his uh, uh, explorations of Indonesia in the, the, you know, the 18, mid-19th century when he came up with uh, the idea of natural selection independently of Darwin. One of the species he's, he collected was the world's largest bee, the Wallace's leafcutter, which would span the palm of your hand. It's just a massive bee, and then no one saw it again for nearly a hundred years. It lives only, it builds its nests inside aerial termite nests in a particular, you know, part of the rainforest there. So a very obscure and very wonderful bee. And this, another example of this incredible diversity, as diverse as you see in your flower shop when you're choosing things to put in a bouquet, remember that the vast majority of what you see there is at the you know, exists because of the preferences and proclivities of, of bees. So the bees have, have diversified right alongside all those flowers. Yeah, and all these endemic species. Like, we're going to Hawaii in December, and you were writing about these very particular specialized bees that come to Hawaii that hopefully will still be able to live there as the, as the churn of other kinds of plants show up. But they made it across vast amounts of water. Amazing. Yeah, incredible. There's a, just a, a very small group of native bees in Hawaii, but they're descended from colonizers that crossed the Pacific to get there. And, and now those masked bees are diverse in Hawaii, although threatened. They, they are certainly threatened because the, the native habitat has been so reduced there uh, that they, in fact, uh, several of them are, are threatened species. Among the first bees, I think, to be listed in the, under the Endangered Species Act. All right, so feathers... Gorillas, trees, seeds, bees. Uh, do you have what's your next project? Yeah, right now I'm writing a book about the natural history of climate change. So not about the process itself, 
but about how plants and animals respond to rapid change in their environment and how we can go out now and measure not just adaptations to these changes, but evolution in real time going on around us uh, right now in response to this, this rapid change that, that we are uh, participating in. All right, sir. That was great. Thank you. That was great. Oh, thanks for coming. No, it's my pleasure. Thor Hansen, author of Buzz, The Nature and Necessity of Bees. Grab one of those collecting tubes like the one Hansen carries around and collect a few bees on your own. Carefully, it goes without saying, you will be surprised at the wide variety of insects. I look for the little sweat bees, tiny iridescent, almost like flies flitting from flower to flower, sustaining so much of our own well-being. All this buzz about bees has me seeking native plants to plant in my yard. The wild world still holds on in the smallest of critters. Thor Hansen came to us by way of Town Hall Seattle. You know, you can also hear a shorter version of my interview with Thor Hansen and a number of other interviews that folks are doing to promote upcoming guests to Town Hall Seattle. Look for the podcast In the Moment from Town Hall Seattle, wherever you find fine podcasts. Thanks for listening to At Length. Love to hear from you. Email me, s-s-c-h-e-r at gmail.com. And stay tuned. More podcast episodes of At Length are coming up. Mm -hmm.